Welcome to the latest episode of our Food for Thought podcast. I'm Andy Hanasek, Senior Editor of Food Processing Magazine. In today's episode, we sat down with Sandra Eskin, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety with USDA FSIS at the Food Safety Summit earlier this spring. We discussed everything from worker and food safety impacts of increased poultry and pork line speeds to the data revolution and how it could affect the agency's efforts, as well as the proposal to declare salmonella an adulterant in breaded stuffed raw chicken products. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Let's talk about some of the things the agency is working on, some of the priorities. And, you know, let's start with the obvious one, the, the proposed regulations for salmonella. Just give a quick update on where, where that stands, where, what the progress is at the moment with that, and, and what to expect in the near term. Let me first provide context, since everyone who listens may not be very knowledgeable about the meat and poultry laws. Mm-hmm. But uh, both for our laws and FDA, the key power we have is to declare something an adulterant. And what that means is we can, when we find it in a product, we can do everything we can to ensure that product doesn't go into commerce. And in fact, among our our tools is the ability to actually shut down a plant. And we do that by pulling our inspectors. Inspectors are required all the time at slaughter, once a day in processing. So that's a really potent weapon. Why poultry and salmonella? Why now? Well, we're a public health agency. You need to look at the public health data, look at outbreaks. And there are, at this point, based on our current estimates, a significant number of illnesses and outbreaks are linked to poultry. And it's, I think, necessary in that con- in that con- context to ask what could we doing what could we doing better what more could we do to bring down these illnesses Um, and it's a little bit confounding because if you look over time the contamination that we're finding in the products themselves is decreasing that's the salmonella Mm -hmm. but there is no really uh significant or even insignificant decrease in the salmonella illnesses Hmm. linked to food So what are we doing? We're rethinking our whole strategy. We put out a a framework document that covers from the time the birds enter the slaughterhouse to the time the products leave. What could we be doing? And corollary with that is we actually have proposed declaring um, salmonella to be an adulterant in a specific raw poultry product. And it's a stuffed breaded raw chicken product. It looks like it's ready to eat, but it's not. You'll see them in the freezer section. Mm -hmm. Uh, The photos of the products, they are parboiled, so they look cooked. Uh, Instructions on the packages have tried to warn and educate consumers what they have to do to eat this safely, and we continue to have outbreaks. And so we decided that it was really important for us to explain in this determination why we think salmonella should be an adulterant in this product and what that means. So we are looking at other products. We have made no decisions at this point beyond the proposal for these stuffed chicken products. Um, And we believe that um, we are benefited from this whole journey uh, by a lot of stakeholder input, not just the industry, consumer groups, academics. We 
asked for comments in writing. We've asked them comments on meetings. We're asking for documentation on research and we're looking at risk assessments. We are very committed to making decisions that are public health based, science based, evidence based, practically based, and um, we're confident that we'll be able to make some progress on bringing those illnesses down with this new strategy. So, you know, you mentioned that contamination of products is down, but illnesses aren't, are not, right? So obviously the processors are doing some things well. What are some of those that really stand out to you over the last couple of years sure. maybe? And, and are they things that maybe in this new strategy they can build upon and scale and help the rest of the industry? That's a great question. Go ahead. I'm going to answer it slightly differently. Sure. <laughs> so what are the de explanations for this disconnect between the contamination that we're seeing and the illnesses and the reduction we're not seeing? And I, my understanding is one factor is right now we and industry sample and test product, but we only use testing for prevalence. Mm -hmm. Is it contaminated or isn't it contaminated? That is not targeted to the real concern. Does that contamination cause human illness or doesn't it? So one of the things we have proposed for the stuffed chicken was that it wouldn't just be prevalence, it would be quantity of bacteria. In that product, we're proposing a very low level, but it is a level. Then mm -hmm. that is sort of, I think, the first frontier in getting a better testing focus for our decisions and for industries as well. So it's quantification of the bacteria and serotype. That's tricky because right now there isn't a, a cost-effective, quick test that a company can use, let alone the agency, uh, to determine what serotype um, is involved. Because we know that there are 2,500 or 600 different serotypes, 100 that cause human illness, and then, of course, what is found in the poultry supply. Not all hundred, but of course, we also know the bacteria want to evolve, they want to survive, and they're constantly swapping DNA and other factors. So, again, one quantification, we're in a good place at the start right now. Two serotypes, we are hopeful, and we're hearing a lot about the development of testing that could be used, because that would clearly narrow what concerning what concerning what concerns we have about particular products right it's just those that have these serotypes at high enough level they could make people sick okay. looking down the road quite some way ideally there are uh, we'll have testing that would identify uh, pathogenicity factors virulence factors there are there's dna on those my High school biology teacher would be so proud of me. There's <laughs> DNA on those uh, the bacteria that are swapped, and they actually determine the the virulence of the bacteria, and therefore the illness that it causes. That is the ultimate goal. That would be very, very tailored to human illness. But I think we've got to start where we are now and move in that direction. So, to your question. I um, think if we all had the testing that could identify the serotypes and easily do enumeration, 
we'd have a, we'd be doing a much better job. So I don't fault. Yes, there are certain things that companies do. I think, by and large, they do a lot. <laughs> but as these bacteria evolve and the science evolves, it'll help us really zero in on on um, on the public health impact. I'll say one other thing. Mm-hmm. One of the discussions we're having is like, well, this testing isn't here yet and when is it going to get here and how do we assure it's going to get here and i remember being involved with the e coli on 57h7 discussion about adulteration in the early 90s and those same arguments were made well if we require it they will build it mm-hmm. there are some phenomenal testing companies using you know just the most modern techniques COVID for all of the bad things it brought to our lives, uh, testing for uh, viruses and bacteria has really evolved. And um, I think the other thing that we are very mindful of is if we set new standards, we need to give industry, we need to give testing companies, everyone, a long runway, a reasonable compliance date by which they need to meet the requirements. It's funny, it's almost like you're reading my mind in a sense. I did not write this down in front of me, but I was going to ask you, are there are there any parallels when, you know, with E. coli, you know, 015787 when that was an adulterant and, mm-hmm. and the big push went there? So you mentioned there there are some parallels. There are. I mean, it is clear, and I have heard from many in the industry, that E. coli is not salmonella and beef is not chicken, and we know that. Mm -hmm. When we use a parallel, what we say, I I say two things. One, the sentence I just said to you, that if you put in place a requirement, it's quite remarkable how industry, broadly speaking, right, Mm -hmm. not only meat and poultry companies, but testing companies, rise to the challenge. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, certainly with the big six, the other um, STECs that were declared adulterants more recently, in 0157, we set out criteria for what we look at in determining whether it's adulterant. I'm going to paraphrase them a little bit here. So one is, um, what are the serotypes that are involved specifically? That's the challenge, practically speaking. Um, uh, how many outbreaks? Are there a lot of outbreaks? Yes, we have a lot with a salmonella. And I'll use the stuffed chicken. Um, are people having a difficult time following directions in terms of correctly preparing and handling this. Yes, this in particular. And I started at the end with probably the most important um, one, and um, that is, again, the dose response. Uh, How many cells does it take to make a person sick? And there's a lot of you have to unpack there, because Mm -hmm. are you talking about the average adult, healthy, children, older people? Uh, people with immune compromised system. Speaking personally, I believe as a society we should protect the most vulnerable. Uh, I don't make these decisions myself, so we have to make it uh, collaboratively at the agency, but there's a lot of discussion around that too. So those are the criteria that we used most recently, um, and the answers are different for all of those, depending on what product you're talking about. Not only is it beef or chicken? But is it parts? Is it ground product? Is it whatever? But um, uh, again, not the same as E. coli, not the same as beef, but there are clearly 
standards and lessons we've learned from that that can inform our work going forward. Parallels within the process of how it went. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, chicken specifically, you have small operators, small yep. and mid-sized operators, yep. and you have the big dogs yep. too, right? Yep. So talk about the differences there. How is this going to affect those sure. smaller guys, smaller guys sure. and gals who are, are you know, sure. not Tyson Foods right. and not Pilgrim's Pride or whatever, any of those types? So um, consumers generally don't know if the chicken they buy in the supermarket is from a big manufacturer or a smaller operation. Some people definitely choose, let's say, a smaller operation because of its practices it uses in raising animals. Totally get that. Mm -hmm. So as a proposition, generally, regardless of the size of your operation, you need to produce safe food. And generally, we want everybody to follow the same standards. However, there are many things we can do to help small and very small operations meet the requirements. One is a longer period of compliance mm -hmm. for it to start. They have more time to get up to speed on what they need to do. We can provide them with a lot of technical assistance. Also very helpful. Um, and we've talked generally, and we will certainly talk some more about other things that we could provide. Uh, we hear a lot from small and very small. We do a lot to try to help them, uh, understanding that burdens of requirements, regulations can fall more hard, might be harder for them to meet. Um, but uh, again, uh, we will be very focused on that going forward. Sort of along those lines, but you know, even some of the bigger companies aren't necessarily prepared. But it sounds like all of this is going to, you know, going to tie right into this big data revolution that the world is going through, right? Right. And the meat and poultry industry, when it comes to digital, whatever it is, uh -huh. is they're better now than you know years ago. Mm -hmm. how, how do you see, you know? Do you see this creating a crush of data, a tidal wave of data? And if so, how is the agency prepared to handle it? Do, you know, do you have enough analysts on right. staff, things like that? Or is there going to have to be a big ramp up in that respect? I think that it won't be a big avalanche. I think it'll be a slow trickle. Okay. I think fundamentally in whatever form data is shared, we have to find a way for the agency to have access to data, specifically testing data. And we have to find a way at the same time for companies to be willing to share that data. They don't want to be liable for potential enforcement. Mm -hmm. I totally get that. But I also get there are ways that we can protect them, the ways we can present, ask them to present the data anonymized or just just handled in such a way that it was there for us available to look at trends to identify problems not for us to say oh look this company wasn't doing whatever or they had a spike I think uh, as I said this morning and I will reiterate it better data makes better policy and um, without having access to data from industry to help us make the policy, to have an understanding of what the landscape looks like, 
we have really no choice but to use our own data solely. And um, I, I really do believe that data is sound, but there's not a lot of it. So I know that AI is the, uh, is the acronym of the day. Uh, it provides and presents some amazing opportunities in a whole range of issues. We did set up the Public Health Information System, PHIS, many years ago already, and it works well for our inspection force. We're always updating it and refining it, and I hope we'll be able to, on scale, use something like that when the time comes. Okay, okay. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about, you know, something that's you hear every now and then about, and, and I was interested when you brought it up uh, during the town hall as a priority, uh, line speeds. Yes. Uh, poultry, swine line speeds. And, and there's always some debate in the news about it's too fast or needs to be right. faster and what about safety, mm-hmm. food safety and mm-hmm. things like that. But I was intrigued to hear that you're working on a study well, uh, through a third right. party. Right, no, but a study. On, yeah, on, on worker safety with right. line speeds. So right. is, is that still relatively fresh, new? Like It's is still there... in process. Okay. Uh, let me back up and say a couple things. One mm-hmm. is, as Secretary Vilsack has said many times, as an agency, we should not be forced to choose between food safety, worker safety, and company profitability. It's kind of a false choice. Mm-hmm. There's been an ongoing debate for the last almost uh, long time, <laughs> more than a <laughs> yeah. decade, yeah. Uh, that increases in line speed harm establishment workers. There's been information back and forth, but we don't have a comprehensive, reliable analysis of data as well as observation mm-hmm. by experts that can answer that question. It's still very anecdotal. The, exactly. These are really, really you know, good. These are solid ergonomists. Mm-hmm. They are worker safety people. They're taking the time to learn, to observe, and then to deal with the data. But the key piece here is the increase in line speed. We've operated at a certain level, both in uh, poultry, actually in all the species, but we've been challenged in court on swine and we lost. And um, the poultry uh, litigation was dismissed by the choice of the petitioner because we were doing this study. So the key is going to be is do we see a substantiated impact. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, on worker safety, I did say there, we always want to clarify, FSIS regulates the product, not the people who make it. However, we are obligated to consider the impact that any policy we come up with, like increasing the line speed, has an impact, what impact it has on workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I'm, I'm confident that the data and analysis that we get will help us to hopefully and stakeholders will agree, we have a good sense of what we're dealing with and here are our options going forward. Well, and even though you don't regulate the workers, anybody who's been in a plant, and I've been in, you've been in, sure. everybody, most of our listeners probably too, you know, it's all intertwined. Yes. If you have workers that are getting injured or not showing up or you know, or whatever it is, or they're sleepy or tired or whatever, yeah, that, that could easily affect food safety. Oh, there's no question. 100%. There's no question. And, but yeah. and again, there was data presented when the, when the rulemakings 
were finalized that showed that we didn't have a concern about food safety. We're constantly aware of it, though, because that's important. Um, and the, the good thing, too, is we have an agreement with OSHA, which is the agency for worker safety. We've set up training for our inspectors. If they see any concerning impacts on workers in terms of safety, they report them. And that's, uh, that's the real avenue to go in terms of dealing with um, worker safety generally in a plant. Okay. So labor in general, you know, some of, some of the reasons you can necessarily increase line speed is because of the automation that's yep. out there now, right? Um, which is good because, as we all know, labor was a challenge even before COVID. And now it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, what about inspectors? Do you guys have enough inspectors? Are you guys having challenges with the workforce and getting enough inspectors out there to be able to keep these plants going and things like sure. that? And, and how are you addressing any shortages you might have there? In terms of inspectors themselves, we've been doing just fine. And I think there's always a residual, you know, percentage of, uh, uh, of a gap between uh, you know, what we fill and what we haven't filled yet. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge that we've had recently, and we're doing a number of different things to try to address it, is with our veterinarians. Okay. So we have incentive programs helping pay back loans. We have a whole a number of options. And recently we announced that we're uh, launching a, a different approach to veterinary coverage, and it's called the District Veterinary Medical Officer. And rather than just having, um, I'm using a Mac, SPVs in plants, we're going to have um, one veterinarian kind of oversee what's happening in the plant. And okay. we've had a significant uh, openings. We have a lot of um, vacancies for, for veterinarians. That's where we've really seen it. We're working uh, to try to fill that. Um, and I just also want to note, as another part of USDA is giving out funding to, funding to expand meat and poultry processing capacity, which is terrific, mm -hmm. we are prepared and aware that we need to make sure that we need staff to, oper to work in those facilities once they're either up and running or expanded. But that's sort of every day. Yeah. Every week, every month, challenges. Okay, okay. So, to to kind of wrap up here, and, and you know, and and I'll let you go. But when you look at where we're at in the industry as a whole, you know, from your perch, um, what has you excited about where your oversight, the meat and poultry? What has you excited about where we're going? You know, what, what has you most motivated motivated to keep doing things, but, but also just really, like, look, look at the great things we're doing, mm -hmm. you know. And, mm -hmm. yes, there's challenges, but we can overcome them because of this. Sure. Um, I think a lot of the, what we're doing in Salmonella is really um, exciting and gratifying. I will say this. When I came into the agency two years ago, I had worked on meat and poultry episodically over my career, hadn't engaged with the leadership in recent years. And so there was a period of time that I think I needed to take, and I did, to get to know them, for them to get to know me. 
I come out of the consumer advocacy community, and of course that made them very wary. And it wasn't until I was in three or four months that I started talking about salmonella. Hey, I think we should take another look at how we regulate this. What are our options, et cetera? And they were all in, and that was great. And they've been all in. It's been a very collaborative process. I think that's the most exciting part is just the ability to pull from all this expertise that we have inside FSIS and, and, and to craft a policy and continue to have it evolve and tweak it that is really something that it would be wrong for me to say everybody loves it that's not fair um, and it's it's different I get that it's a pivot but um, I think that's been among the most exciting stuff that I've done to date I'll also reference Andy just a little thing that I mentioned this morning in my years as a consumer advocate I did a lot of work for AARP mm-hmm. when I was much younger um, now I'm a member uh, that involved around labeling and readability mm-hmm. and people's ability to read, understand, and then be motivated to do whatever it is the label says. And that's why I definitely made a priority in the food safety slash labeling arena to take another look at the safe handling instruction label that's been on raw and partially cooked meat and poultry products since 1994. There's been a lot of evolution in label design and communication. There always is. And of course, the ultimate goal of finding communication that motivates people to do what you're telling them they should do to protect themselves. That's fun, and I use fun in quotes, mm-hmm. or without quotes. It's interesting talk, talking to the contractors doing the work and the staff who worked on this is many iterations of research. I was very specific at what I wanted. I want them to hire a designer who can design the label. That's how the Nutrition Facts label was developed. And I want them to really tap into behavioral psychology. So um, I look forward to how that's going to evolve. I, um, again, coming with some knowledge was helpful, but I can always learn more. Um, And I just think that is the primary way that FSIS helps people keep their families safe when they make meat and poultry products. So it's, it's, I think it's, it should be, and it is a priority. Well, and, and that's great. And yes, you mentioned that too. And it's great to hear because even just beyond safe handling, learning how to cook some of these items, people just don't know. And, you know, let alone being safe, making them and making them taste good for their families. I think, you know, that's something that, you know, even myself being around the meat and poultry industry, I have trouble with some cuts on my yep. stove and it's like, how am I going to do this? And I just make sure I'm very tuned into the safety of sure. it, but then sometimes it's a little too dried it, out. It, it is. <laughs> and that's always yeah. the balance, but I will right. make one, um, I will make one recommendation to the people who are listening or reading this. And that is use a meat thermometer. There are many on the market. They range in sophistication, complexity. There are some that are very affordable, but it is the only way you know that your meat, poultry, for that matter, fish, and other products are fully cooked. Mm-hmm. When you fully cook something, you have better chance of killing all the bacteria, if there is bacteria. For everyone listening in today to our Food for Thought podcast, thanks for tuning into this episode. You can find more of our podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, 
and just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future and have a great day.